It is imperative that pro-life conviction doesn't override pro-life compassion because it is not so much about winning a debate as it is about changing hearts. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. If you didn't listen to our last week's episode, we want to say Happy New Year to one and all. That opening quote is a quote by Stephanie Gray Connors in her book, Love Unleashes Life. We are excited to have Stephanie on the program today. But before that, just a few things. Hello, Cam. My wonderful co-host, good to see you. It is good to be back, my friend. Thank you for everything. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I you you are welcome, sir. I I don't know exactly what's on your mind when you say that at this point, but uh, I I certainly do appreciate that. Um, yeah, that's great. All right. Um, yeah. Like I said, Happy New Year. Welcome to the new year, everyone. I hope you've been adequately inspired by the last episode to make this year a year in which you deepen your pro-life convictions and your pro-life engagement through having more conversations about abortion, showing more people the truth about abortion. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, go check it out. Cam, we had a, a really exciting episode come out, which is the first episode in a new series. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, we are really excited about this new series in which we are calling Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, in which we explore the lives of the defenders of the defenseless. It is basically uh, an exploration of the various people in all different stages of life who are having conversations about abortion, whether that's in a full-time, a part-time, or a volunteer capacity, really learning about the people who are changing minds and saving lives with a twofold goal. First and foremost, we want to showcase some of the incredible people who are active, not only in the Canadian pro-life movement, but around the world. But not only that, we want to show them for who they really are, down-to-earth, incredible people just like you. These aren't necessarily... Um, experts uh, with with doctorates in pro-life apologetics and, and all this kind of thing. They are down-to-earth people who have very cool lived experiences, and we hope that through featuring these um, different incredible pro-life ambassadors that you'll be inspired to continue deepening your engagement, that you'll see that you don't need to be a whole lot different than than you are right now to be able to have good conversations. You just need some more practice. Um, I need more practice. Peter needs more practice. We all need more practice. 
each and every one of us can have an impact. And we want to showcase that by showing just how cool the people in the movement are and how down to earth and how very much like you and I they are. Yeah, that's right. And you can find those episodes either on your podcast catcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Or you can find those episodes on YouTube. We have been recording them so you'll be able to see our faces and uh, and watch the conversations, which is really exciting. These episodes coming out every Thursday, except for the first Thursday of the month where we have a new another new series coming out called The Pulse. And on The Pulse, our first one's coming out February 5th. That's, that's the launch date. And these will be monthly installments where we will round up the good, the bad, and the ugly news that pertains to the pro-life conversation from around the world. And we hope to share that with you so that you can learn what's happening around the world. And you can get your pro-life news not from pro-abortion out- media outlets, but you can get it from a pro-life perspective One more thing before we start and introduce our guest. As we mentioned last episode, we are on Patreon, and you can find us by going to patreon.com backslash prolifeguys. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. Um, You can, uh, there are a number of tiers, and we have some really, really pretty sweet uh, and exclusive uh, merch that you can get for uh, for supporting us on different tiers. You can find the information out there. But we would love if you guys could get involved with us financially. Why we are starting, um, we are starting Humans of the Pro Life Movement. We're starting the Pulse. Um, there's uh, equipment costs and a bunch of other things like that. And we have some exciting things that we are working on. Ex- ideas that we really, really, really want to put forward and uh, see come to fruition where we will continue to bring the truth about abortion to the people around us. Um, so by by joining us on Patreon, uh, by, by supporting us financially, you will be a big part in fighting abortion, in, in saving lives, in changing minds on abortion. A few things uh, for the merch. I mean, we have these, uh, these pretty cool glasses. Um, Cam, this is your bread and butter. Tell us about some of the merch that, uh, that is available. Oh man, I, I thought that you were going to say optical glasses to, to wear. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. No, we at different tiers, we have different levels. The one that I'm the most excited about at this point is we have some signature pro life guys scotch tumblers. Um, I know that some of you probably aren't scotch drinkers. Some of you might not be drinkers at all, and I totally respect that. Um, some of you may be. Um, as I am, I'm a hobby guy. I will have a casual sip uh, once a month or, or so. And. We have some really, really cool signature scotch tumblers that you can get at, I think it's the $50 a month level. It's one of our higher packages. But if if you're not in a position to join at that level, you can certainly tune in at uh, one of the other levels. We have some signature mugs, uh, travel mugs, and water bottles. We have some stickers that we're going to be rocking. A few other items that we're still in the process of developing. But there's a lot of really cool, um, I, I don't know if swag necessarily mean stuff that you can wear but we don't have a whole lot of stuff that you can wear quite yet um, but I, i'm excited about these scotch tumblers i'm excited about the travel mugs and water bottles and all that kind of stuff to help grow the brand grow the movement of the pro-life guys we've been so appreciative of so many of you tuning in and building up um the the podcast sharing it with your friends and family members and we hope that we can help not only give back to you but also um 
allow you to be a part of the growth, not only improving the show, but also putting more and more boots on the ground to save more lives and change more minds. Yes. So you can find us patreon.com backslash pro life guys. All right, Cam, let's dive into our guest introductions. We are going to be having a conversation today with Stephanie Gray Connors. She is uh, one of the best pro-life speakers in the world. She is the original founder or co-founder and former executive director of CCBR, the organization that we work for. And she has given countless, dare I say, thousands. Uh, I don't know. I haven't actually counted them, but so many talks and workshops on abortion, on pro-life apologetics. Uh, and some notable ones were talks she gave at the Google headquarters at Yale, at Harvard, at the University of Victoria, where this is pretty this is pretty notable. A young and not yet gray-haired Cameron Cote heard her speak for the first time and where he got involved with CCBR. And that was over 10 years ago, and he has learned so much and has had thousands upon thousands of conversations because of... Uh, because in part of the the workshop and the inspiration of Stephanie Gray Connors, she is the author of two books at this moment, working on a third. Uh, she has written Love Unleashes Life and a new book, which is just coming out now, which is Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. Cam, you know Stephanie far better than I do. Anything else you want to add before we invite her in for this conversation? Stephanie has been a great, great friend of mine, great mentor of mine ever since I first got involved with CCBR back in 2009, back when I was a, um, a very young, very immature, very um, not knowledgeable guy at the University of Victoria. She came, she gave a, a knockout, lights out um, debate um, with Dr. Ike Kluga. And here I am ever since then. She is a wonderful mentor of mine. I had the great privilege of working with her at CCBR um, for, for several years. And she, as you mentioned, is one of the leading apologists on the abortion issue. She has probably forgotten more than I will ever know about pro-life apologetics. And I am super excited to have her on the show today. All right, let's, uh, let's have this conversation. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be reunited with the CCBR folks. Yeah, we are extremely thrilled to have you on and to talk with us about Love Unleashes Life, uh, your book, about the principles behind that, about how to reach people in conversations. But before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit about your journey in the pro-life movement? Why did you start uh, you know, doing pro-life activism and why did you start speaking and why is this something that's important to you? Sure. Yes. Well, it actually began very early in that both of my parents were very active in the pro-life movement. So I was a child activist. I was that kid like your children who would be taken to marches and protests and rallies and abortion clinics and conferences. And I even started writing letters when I was 12 years old to uh, the premier of British Columbia, where I was growing up, uh, the prime minister of Canada, who at the time was Jean Chrétien, um, letters to the editor of, of local newspapers. So I was really active in speaking out against abortion. So it was a deep-seated passion from a young age. And then a significant turning point for me was in my first year at UBC, where I did my degree in political science. I attended the National um, 
NCLN National Campus Life Network Symposium. And NCLN back then was very new. I think it was like one or two years old. And it was January 1999. It was this conference for pro-life university students from across Canada. And an American speaker named Scott Klusendorf was the main speaker for the weekend. And he taught us pro-life apologetics and how to be winsome and uh, graceful when engaging on a controversial topic like abortion. So I heard him speak and was blown away and thought, I want to do what he does. (laughs) And then during his talk, two things happened. One, he played a video of abortion victim photography. The video at the time was called The Harder Truth. Uh, which showed an abortion in progress and then the aftermath of abortion. And I remember just being moved to tears at the brutality of it. And the second thing he did was he said, there are more people working full time to kill babies than there are working full time to save them. And it was in that moment where I really felt convicted. Oh, my goodness, I need to be one of those people working full time to save babies. So long story short, um, Scott began to mentor me from a distance. I finished my degree, but I started giving talks in apologetics, started working with abortion victim photography. And with a group of other young Canadians, CCBR was born. Yeah, that that is so great. And it is phenomenal to hear that um, you were involved from a very, very young age. I know I started later. I, I can't remember, maybe 20, 22 years old. I don't know about you, Cam. Um, but the fact that you were born into a family where your parents were already doing pro-life outreach. Now, I, I have a question for you. I'm a parent of two young children. Cameron is a parent of one young child. Um, what What was one of the things or two of the things that you remember from the way that your parents brought you up as pro-life activists um, that really solidified and helped you in, in your pro-life position and, and inspired you and encouraged you to get out and write letters and be active even at a really young age? What, what are some of those things that you remember that helped you that your parents did? That's a good question. Um, what comes to mind is twofold. One is there was a lot of talk about the pro-life movement, about abortion, about the need to speak out when things were happening, even in our local community. I remember there was a type of Planned Parenthood affiliate that was opening up in the suburb of Vancouver. I was living in Chilliwack. And my parents were always talking about how this this terrible thing was happening and, and we needed to speak up. So there was the constant conversation was continually educating me. There was also pro-life literature all over the house. There was always pamphlets, always books. I was finding them, uh, reading them. I started when I went, went to high school, like doing projects for class and choosing abortion as my topic and then using the resources that my parents had laying around the house. And then there was the practical action that they were doing. Uh, My mom volunteered at a pregnancy center. So I would often go with her when she was counseling and and I would wait in the waiting room and play with fetal models while she counseled pregnant girls. When her clients went into uh, labor and gave birth at the hospital, she'd visit. I'd go with her. So just being immersed in information and then action, you know, immediately acting upon what one is learning, I think was influential. The other thing that stands out is when I was quite young, I don't even—I was younger than ten, I believe. So it was the '80s. There was a lot of Operation Rescue happening um, in the '80s and '90s in the U- U.S. and Canada, where people would peacefully but boldly blockade abortion clinics with their own bodies, and they would chain themselves in front of doors so that people couldn't uh, enter, with the hopes that the delay of police having to unchain everyone would cause women to to cancel their appointments, not go. Um, 
And my parents had friends that were involved in Operation Rescue, and they had a friend who was arrested for peacefully protesting outside a clinic. And he was put in a type of jail, a, a low minimum security jail place in Chilliwack. And I remember that back in the days of phone lines, of course, pre-cell phones, that there was a phone line set up in our house because his wife lived out of town. And so any call would be long distance if she called her husband in the jail. So a phone line was set up so that when she called him, it ran through a line in our house so that it made for a local call. And so this phone was in our basement where my sister and I often played. And I remember we were always given strict instructions, like when that phone rings, don't pick it up. Um, you know, that's this lady calling her husband. And then I remember around Christmas time, we went to the jail and visited him. So here I am, a tiny child going to prison to visit, you know, visit someone. So yeah, that just, I knew that the issue was serious and that people around me were taking it seriously by their actions and, and things like that James Hanlon man. So yeah, and I think that's such a beautiful aspect of the pro-life movement, this multi-generational kind of passing the torch on to our children. And and I just anecdotally, I remember the first time I actually met your mom, um, it was on the new abortion caravan. We were going through your hometown. We were mingling with people after the church service. And I was just trying to make small talk with with anyone. And, and she was standing beside me and I just asked her like, oh, are you familiar with CCBR? And she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm quite familiar. And I was like, oh, well, do you know Stephanie? And she says, yeah, I, I know Stephanie quite well. And I, I don't know what inspired me to ask the question, but I just asked like, oh, well, how long have you known Stephanie? And she was very, very precise in exactly how long she had known you. And I think it's just so beautiful how your parents were able to, to really pass that on to you and, and just the incredible, incredible work um, that you've done. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Stephanie Gray Connor, she's an incredible, I mean, I, I would still hold you. I, I'm sure that I'm a little bit biased because I've had the pleasure of working with you for such a long time. But I, I think that you're one of the greatest speakers in, in the global pro-life movement, not just the Canadian pro-life movement. And to dive into the, the real meat and potatoes of today's episode. We're talking a little bit about what we would call heart apologetics, speaking to people who may be hurting um, for a variety of different reasons and whatnot. And the first kind of meat and potatoes question I wanted to ask you, Stephanie, so you have not only spoken to thousands of students on university campuses and at high schools, but you've also done debates with people like Dr. Peter Singer, Dr. Jan Narvinson, um, people who hold I would say some of the most reprehensible views on abortion imaginable. Not only that, but you um, debated abortionists such as Dr. Malcolm Potts and Dr. Fraser Fellows. You have talked to some people who hold some very, very barbaric um, views, and yet your delivery is always so composed, so professional, so winsome. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about disposition and how to prepare ourselves for conversations, which may very well be very intellectual, but may also be very, very emotionally charged, very um, spiritually charged as well. How, how do you go about preparing yourself for these conversations and maybe some, some thoughts and, and suggestions for our, our audience and how they can best prepare themselves for having these conversations about abortion? Sure. Yeah. Well, if I think about kind of what I've learned over the years, I, I kind of distill the strategy, for lack of a better term, down to three things, which is prayer, study and practice. Um, and I realize that there are some wonderful people in the pro-life movement who don't identify as being religious, 
um, but come from a human rights perspective and can certainly reasonably come to the conclusion that abortion is wrong. But as a Catholic Christian, as a woman of faith, I do believe that my prayer life will guide me in better being able to reach people on a supernatural level because I come from the perspective of, of believing that God knows things about the other person's heart that I don't know. And so if I ask him for help, then I will like ask a question that seems maybe even insignificant to me, but will suddenly lead to a profound encounter with this person who reveals what's maybe at the heart of their hostility. So I'm really praying for divine insight, divine inspiration. I remember when um, I spoke at Google a few years ago, I have a prayer team that I email and I emailed my prayer team and said, you know, please pray for this very significant event I have coming up. And one of my prayer team members, this wonderful evangelical woman messaged me back and she said, I'm going to pray for a Pentecostal event. She said, I'm going to pray that whatever you say is, is um, brought from your mouth into the ears of the listeners by the Holy Spirit and translated in a way that they best understand so that they hear what they need to hear and don't hear what, what they don't need to hear. Um, so I'll often do that now is pray for a Pentecostal event. Whatever I say is translated as, as the person needs to hear it. Um, there's an ancient prayer I, I mentioned in my book on abortion called the Peace Prayer. It's often been associated with a, a Roman Catholic saint, Francis of Assisi, but um, there's, that's been called into question whether it was actually related to him. But the prayer midway through goes, O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. And so I think that really needs to be part of our disposition as we enter into a conversation. How do I understand where this person is coming from. Um, related to that, there was a book that I remember when I was at CCBR, I think, Cam, you were there at the time, Peter, I don't think you were, uh, but I had everyone read a book called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. And in this book, the author talks about three, imagine having three buckets of water in front of you, um, a cold bucket of water, a lukewarm bucket of water, and a hot bucket of water. And then the author says, imagine putting your left hand in the cold bucket and your right hand in the hot bucket. And he said, if after 30 seconds, you take both hands out and put them in the middle bucket, what temperature will each hand think the new bucket of water is? Well, the hand which came from the cold bucket is going to think the new bucket is hot. The hand which came from the hot bucket is going to think the new bucket is cold. And interestingly, objectively, they're both wrong. The new temperature is lukewarm, but the previous experience is coloring the present interpretation. And I remember when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, that captures it exactly in terms of what I found interacting with the culture is there are certain conversations I've had where I seem to be hitting my head against a brick wall, right? I'm having a very difficult time getting through to someone. And I've started to realize in those moments, I need to pause and ask myself, what temperature was the bucket of water they were in before I met them? In other words, what was their experience with abortion or with the issue related to abortion we're discussing, you know, sexual assault, poverty, broken family, whatever it is. And if, an I, if I can identify that there's something in their story that is influenced how they're talking to me about abortion today, then that will help me build a bridge with this individual by understanding, oh, their personal pain, the pain of a loved one is causing them to embrace abortion, for example. So mm. praying to have that insight, 
And then studying pro-life apologetics, studying how to dialogue uh, with people. And I did that in the early years with a lot of Scott Klusendorf's writings, Greg Kolkel's writings, uh, Frank Beckwith's writings. Um, so there's a lot of great minds out there. And then, then you put into practice as, as you do so well at CCBR. You talk to one person after another, after another, and you start to see which analogies, which questions resonate and, and which don't. Mm-hmm. And and I, I love what you said about understanding people's experience. We we talk in the podcast often that nobody flips a coin to decide whether or not they're going to support abortion or not, right? This, this isn't a flippant decision that somebody has read, um, uh, seen a meme on, on Instagram or something and like, oh, clearly I'm going to be an, an ardent abortion supporter. People have baggage. And that's something that we have to recognize and and something that not only I, I love the way that you put it that not only are there particular experiences that they may have experienced leading into the conversation, but there's particular experiences that we have as well. We're all coming into the conversation with a particular paradigm. And I find sometimes volunteers might be um, dismissive at times of different um arguments that they might hear, oh, that one's a really weak argument. I can't believe anybody would actually say that or actually believe that. Um, in in a lot of ways, this is really flavored by our experience and and how we perceive that argument or experience to to impact the abortion decision. And so bearing that in mind, I'm I'm curious from the the countless conversations that you've had and, and presentations and whatnot, are there examples of times where you have started into a conversation and maybe it started out as a very cerebral kind of conversation where you're talking through the facts of prenatal development or the the legislation and policies globally about human rights and whatnot, and you've noticed that it's not resonating and that you need to make a shift in approach towards something that does factor in their experience a little bit more than just the information that you may have been conveying initially. Mm. Yeah. So what comes to mind is to mind is an adventure that you and I have participated in together. And that was the Genocide Awareness Project in Florida, which I believe you guys now run the human rights exhibit. Is that what you call it? Or- uh, the Abortion Awareness Project is what we're calling it now. Uh, okay. we, we found that the genocide comparison, though valid, was, was just proven to be too much of a stumbling block for so many students. And so to, to streamline the conversation, we just simplified it to the Abortion Awareness Project. Yeah. Right, right. So, but of course, whether it's, you know, that or gap the adventures that we would take with a group of Canadians, bringing them down to Florida in, in February, uh, which is, is my home now. And I can tell you it's freezing right now in January. Like I am so cold. <laughs> so I remember we actually had some cold gaps in, in February, but regardless, I remember doing a training the night before the exhibit, which you'd be very familiar with. And we would typically gather what we thought was a pro-life audience. So it was the local pro-life campus club that was sponsoring our presence on their campus, any local pro-lifers that were supporting it. And then the team of young Canadians that we brought down, we wanted everyone to have a unified training the night before. And so I remember doing one of these trainings And then a student came up to me at the end and started talking with me and it became abundantly clear he was not pro-life. And so I thought, oh, somehow this pro-abortion student heard about our training and came to it. And so he was a philosophy major. And I know you've debated with a lot of philosophy majors. And so he was very cerebral, very academic, intellectual, using all kinds of analogies that you often, I have often heard from philosophy students that involve aliens and different things. And very much though, he was defending and justifying abortion. 
And so at one point in our conversation, we were discussing the issue of personhood and how personhood is defined. And one of the points I made was that in my world, personhood is defined by being a member of the human family. And so by that definition, everyone who's human is included and that no one can be excluded. Whereas historically, you know, women who were, who were human were once denied personhood status because of sex or blacks who are human were denied personhood status because of skin color or Jews because of their ethnicity or religion, although human were denied personhood status. So my point to him was whether you're a male or female, you know, Jew or not, black or not, um, born or not, what matters is, are you human? And if you're human, you ought to be considered a person. And in my world, you're safe. And after I made that kind of wrap up statement in my world, you're safe, he looked at me and he had such deep seated anger in his eyes. And he snapped back in your world, I wouldn't exist. And I was totally confused. And I, I remember looking at him saying, what do you mean? And he retorted back, my mom had an abortion and she had an abortion shortly before she got pregnant with me. So if she had never had the abortion, she never would have conceived me. And in that moment, the previous 30 minutes of our conversation made a whole lot more sense. Although we had spent all that time just intellectually discussing the morality of abortion, um, it became clear to me that it was not just an intellectual issue for him. It was a deeply emotional issue. And that if what I'm saying is true, that abortion kills children, then for him to embrace that perspective is to then have to come to terms with the fact that his very existence is entirely dependent on the slaughter of his sibling. And that's a terrible, painful reality to embrace. And so what he was doing is what most humans do when you come face to face with terrible realities. You go into denial and you don't accept the conclusion. And so unfortunately, that's why he was embracing abortion. So at that point, I did try to ask questions like, well, how's your mom doing? And does your mom ever talk much about that abortion? Clearly, she talked some because he, he knew that abortion had existed. Um, and I did find that it was very difficult to speak to him on that level because he some people are quite receptive at that point when they share something personal and, and he wasn't so much so. Um, but after our conversation, which at least was pleasant, the next day the exhibit happened and he was there almost the whole day listening from conversation to conversation and engaging with others. So I, I have to hope and pray that uh, it made an impact on him. Yeah. And that, that reminds me, we have a, a quote written down on our show notes here. Um, something that you wrote in your book, Love Unleashes Life. And I quote, logic can't help us explain to a hurting or confused student that they are a person of infinite worth. Neither, neither science nor philosophy can change their minds. Only genuine love, end quote. And like you said, I, I mean, I hope that uh, that day and that conversation that you had with him really, really stuck with him. Um, you know, we know from conversations we've had with people that th these sorts of things do stick with them and the way that you treat them sticks with them. But when you reflect, Stephanie, on that conversation that you had, when you reflect on the, the long uh, discussion that you had about the, the morality and the science and the philosophy and all of that, what 
you know, looking back on it, were there some indicators that you noticed that you could have picked up on um, that were like, okay, there's something else going on here? And I'm asking this because, I mean, we have the conversations regularly. People that listen to the podcast have conversations about abortion. So what are some of these indicators that we should look for? We're talking to someone who's, who's very intellectual. We're talking about morality and philosophy and all of these big idea concepts. But what are the indicators that we ought to look for in conversations to be able to discern whether this person is really coming from more of an emotional place? Mm, good question. I think when you come back to whatever the person said with a simple statement or question that's very reasonable and logical that wouldn't take a university degree to comprehend. And instead of the person saying in response to that, oh, I never thought of it that way, or that's a good point, but here's why I disagree. So there's some degree of concession. And I've seen that time and again, as I'm sure you have. There are some people who will say, oh, okay, fair enough. Good point. So instead of any admission of reasonableness with what we've said, there's, it seems like total denial where the person dismisses it entirely and comes back with a very irrational position. Another example that comes to mind that would, would really show that was on another campus where we were doing the Genocide Awareness Project. I was debating with a student who was justifying abortion, a female. And at one point I made the classic analogy to trotting out the toddler. And I said, you know, let's say it was for circumstances of poverty, she was justifying abortion. So then I said, well, what if someone was poor and had a two-year-old child? Would it be okay for them to kill the two-year-old child? And she said, yes, yes, it would. I have no problem with that. And I just thought to myself, like, that is not a normal response. That is not a rational response nor a reasonable response. So that was an indicator to me right away that this girl is not coming from a place of logic because most people do not support the termination of toddlers. Um, so I, I sensed she was coming from a place of emotion. And then it wasn't long after in our conversation where she revealed that she'd had an abortion and that she cries herself to sleep regularly at night. And so she was so beaten up over what she did. She, she in a sense, knew enough intellectually to know that if she said it would be wrong to kill a two-year-old for reasons of poverty, that it would correspondingly follow it would be wrong to kill a pre-born child for reasons of poverty. But she didn't want to make that admission. So instead, she went to the other extreme, saying it's okay to kill two-year-olds because she wanted to say it was okay to do what, what she had done. So when you get really irrational reactions or extreme positions, that's usually an indicator to me of a heart issue, an emotional issue, not so much an intellectual one. Mm -hmm. And and that makes me think of a conversation I was having shortly before Christmas. We were doing, um, Stephanie, I'm sure that you did your share of, of Choice Chain displays at Chinook Mall in Calgary, uh, where we're still out there almost every Saturday talking to people about abortion. And I was, I was speaking to a, a middle-aged woman who was, was having a hard time um, accepting the idea that human life begins at fertilization. And we were talking through a bunch of different examples. And, and at one point, I actually just asked her, hey, do you have a smartphone and do you have data on it? Can you pull out your phone and, and just Google, when does human life begin? And she did it in the first quote that came up, I think it was from Princeton University or something, very clearly stating that human life begins at fertilization. And she looked at that and she looked at me and she said something to the effect of, that just can't be true. And, right. and for me, that was the indicator of, of just, 
she didn't try to over-rationalize it. It just seemed like such a, no, that, that cannot be true. And, and my transition was just asking, you know what, this is a really hard um, truth for a lot of people to come to terms with. Do you mind if I ask you why, why this can't be true? And, and she as well revealed that she had had an abortion and we were able to walk through a lot of that tied to the language that can sometimes come out that, that can indicate that there might be something deeper um, behind their position. Um, there, there's obviously a lot of studies, and a lot of information out there that body language and tone of voice and whatnot can, can be very, very good indicators that um, the, the words aren't as simple as they may sound. And, and I was wondering as well if you might, um, whether it's an example or just a thought on the body language that sometimes people who have experienced great suffering or, or incredibly difficult decisions might exhibit to indicate that, that there's something deeper going on, I, I guess. Does that make sense? It does, yes. Certainly, I've seen a lot of fidgeting when I'm speaking with people and they seem to be almost exhibiting great nervousness, you know, so their, their arms are crossed and maybe they're, they're moving their fingers a lot or um, their face is going flush. Suddenly, like you can actually see like red moving up their neck. And these are often reactions when we feel shame, when we feel fear, when we feel embarrassment. Um, and so those can be indicators of some, like whatever we're talking about on the surface is triggering something deeper. So yeah, definitely those types of physical mannerisms I've, I've seen in the context of conversations where eventually someone reveals as you experienced what their personal story has been. Mm -hmm. And, and so if we segue in from, okay, here are a few indicators that can help us, um, it's not going to be a, a silver bullet necessarily that if somebody exhibits this and they're clearly post-abortive or they've clearly gone through something necessarily. But if if these are indicators, then maybe let's um, transition a little bit to talking about the delivery. This is a little bit about the disposition, how we should personally prepare ourselves for engaging on these different levels, whether it's before the conversation starts or as we're noticing more and more of these indicators coming out. But in your book, Love Unleashed Youth Life, you go through a number of different examples and tactics, I suppose, as well for good questions and good ways that we can either make the person we're talking to feel more comfortable in the conversation, let them know that we're not out there to judge them, or else give them that kind of open space to be able to share a little bit more about where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could share a, a few of those kind of pointers or, or strategies on how we can open the the arena maybe for um, a more, a, a deeper conversation, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. One, one of my favorite questions along those lines is to ask someone, I'm curious, where does your passion come from? And I, I think, for example, when someone goes so far as to say, yes, it's fine to kill toddlers, or I don't care if someone, you know, has a quote unquote fourth trimester abortion and kills a baby, you know, after birth. Um, when, when people make those claims is to then say, well, I mean, that's a position I haven't heard many people own up to. So I appreciate your honesty. I'm curious, where does your passion come from? And then that question might cause them to say, well, because I have a friend who I drove to an abortion clinic or because I had an abortion or because my mom had one. And then we can ask, okay, well, how is your friend doing? Or, you know, but that question about passion is what's going to cause them to reveal. Another occasion that 
brought to mind, I think a helpful question to ask is I was once dealing with a very angry student named Noah and he was swearing, he was cutting me off, raising his voice. And so I was doing everything basically the opposite of him. So as he was speaking quickly, when I could speak, I would speak slower. As he was loud, I spoke more quietly, hoping that my opposite approach would would bring him down a little bit. And knowing that if I met his hostility with my hostility, that would only escalate things higher. And at one point when there was a little break in our conversation, I looked at him and very gently said, Noah, what does someone who thinks like you want someone who thinks like me to understand? And you never know what the person is going to say, but what you're showing in that moment is, first of all, compassion, because you're not coming on like a lawyer and and cross-examining someone in a courtroom. It's, It's genuine interest and curiosity. You're admitting the obvious, but speaking to it, that you're not on the same page, that you think very differently, and that you might have experienced life very differently. So tell me what I don't know. And you're admitting to your ignorance. Um, someone who thinks like me, um, what does someone who thinks like you want want me to know? So clearly, I don't know it all. I'm, I'm missing something. What is that missing piece? Would would you enlighten me? And so I think those two types of questions can be very helpful for sure. Mm-hmm. And and just kind of opening it up to allow allow them to direct the conversation. I think that at times, especially early on in our experience having conversations, we're we're a little bit more nervous. We're worried about um, conversations going down rabbit trails and and losing a handle on the conversation. But I think that's a really a really wise way of allowing them to have some degree of control. Everyone likes to have control in their conversations, in their life, in, in various capacities and whatnot, and, and inviting them to really share what what they care about. Um, Peter, I, I saw that you wanted to jump in there. I don't know if you had another question. Sorry about that. <laughs> I cut you off there. No, 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 that's okay. It reminds me um, that we're not trying to have these conversations with a sort of facts don't care about your feeling mentality. I, I know that's a temptation for many. I know that's a temptation for myself. To be like, I am going to own you in this conversation with all of the very intellectual things that I know and all of the very sound pro-life logic that I have. But what you're, what you're saying here is that that is total, uh, totally not what we need to do when we enter into these conversations. That's something we've highlighted on the podcast before and, and really highlighting the importance of compassion, uh, recognizing that we all have different experiences, recognizing that I am ignorant about the experiences of the high school student or the university student that I'm talking to. And that that makes me think about the idea of suffering, which is a theme that comes up often um, and it is somewhat re- related here, um, comes up often in conversations. And on, on the program in the past, Stephanie, we've tried to convey the model that um, the idea of refuting or resolving all suffering in conversations is not the way to go, but our, our goal is to understand it, allow it to resonate deeply and do what we can to journey with them in the short time that we have. And a theme that you have talked about in your book, uh, a theme that I was first introduced to at the 2014 crash course when I heard you introduce it to me um, when I first joined CCBR in the pro-life movement is called the Be Inspired concept, a concept that you have spoken about before. Um, and this is something that uh, we use in conversations from time to time. Could you 
in- introduce us to this Be Inspired concept and share a little bit about how you can use that in conversation as well. Sure. Yeah, that actually came about as a result of a random conversation. I don't remember which one it was. I remember various conversations in which I later employed it. But I remember speaking with someone who was really focused on suffering. And as I was really trying to understand them and ask them more about their story and their motivations and their experience, a random question popped into my head, which then kind of became the the foundation for the concept of be inspired. And I asked the person who inspires them, is there anyone who has an effect on them in such a way as to raise their spirits, their emotions, their Uh, motivate them, activate them in some way, influence them in a positive way. And I said, it might not even be someone you know, it could be someone you look up to in history or uh, someone who's a character in a book that's not even real. But is there someone uh, for whom you would describe as being an individual who inspires you? And I started noticing the more I asked that question, that people would respond by telling me about someone who suffered someone who went through hardship, someone who went through difficulty, even if I didn't know who the person was, it didn't matter because all I needed to do was then ask them, tell me about the person. And as they would describe the individual, they would talk about difficulty. And then I would say, well, what is it about the person who inspires you? And then they would start to give an answer that involved things like, well, they didn't give up or they focused on others or, you know, they did the right thing even when it was hard. And so Then what I did was I connected the dots for them. And I said, it seems to me that you, by being inspired by this person, can acknowledge that suffering is really a part of everyone's life and certainly was a part of that person's life. And what inspires you about them is not that they didn't suffer, but rather it was how they responded to their suffering. It is what they did with it. And by having a very life-affirming reaction to their own suffering, by not giving up, not committing suicide, not hurting others, by doing the right thing, um, I think it sounds to me like they've provided a template for you. And as we talk about this very different circumstance of suffering that we've spent the last 30 minutes discussing, maybe it's poverty, maybe it's rape, whatever it is, um, but as, as we think about the suffering you've spent an, un, you know, a lot of time sharing with me, Maybe what we could do is model from the person who inspires you and kind of live by that same perspective of not hurting ourselves, not hurting others, doing the right thing, even when it's hard. And I found that that often made a connection to people. And I think because it it was a bridge from just an intellectual discussion on abortion to involving the heart, because when we're inspired, our emotions are involved and we feel differently. And when we feel differently, um, then we think differently. And when we think differently, we behave differently. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I especially love this analogy. I, I'm sure that you've had the same thing, Stephanie, in, in your years of doing pro-life engagement, that there's different arguments that kind of bubble to the surface um, after a couple of years of, of um, being on the shelf and, and that kind of thing. And, and this is actually one of the themes that has kind of returned to me over the last year or so, um, especially as I've been developing and working with the Calgary volunteer team here, that one of the reasons why I love this is because it goes beyond the, the bare minimum. I, I find that so often in pro-life conversations, we are asking people, 
just please don't kill your child. Like, like we're asking so little of people. It, it feels like so often that, that we're not asking to go above and beyond. We're simply asking, just don't kill your child. And yet this theme allows people to, it, I, I find that it engages people in a more holistic kind of way. It's not just a, you shouldn't do this because it's objectively bad, regardless of what you want or that kind of thing. It kind of engages the whole person in a, yeah, there is suffering. And as much as I try to avoid suffering whenever I can, um, when I can't, I can still think about it. And there's still some degree of value in going through a really hard circumstance, really difficult scenario. There, There's value to that. And, and there's something that I can take away. And I don't need to necessarily avoid suffering at all costs necessarily because beautiful things can come from it. I, I, that's one of the reasons why this has come back up for me as one of the things that I'm trying to incorporate in my conversations more frequently to call people to something of a higher standard. I, I don't know if that's something that you've seen um, in in your ministry, not only conversations one-on-one, but in presentations that you've given, trying to call people to something of a higher standard than just so long as you don't kill your children, that's good enough sort of thing. Is that, is that a theme that you think we need to be doing a little bit more of in society, of, of asking more of the people around us, I guess? Yes, I really like how you've put that. And I would say as the years have gone on, and especially as I've continued to speak and write and educate on abortion, but have broadened to other topics such as uh, assisted suicide, really what's at the heart of that issue is suffering. And if we have a disordered response to suffering, then that is going to lead down a path that embraces death and despair, suicide, assisted suicide, euthanasia, and so forth. So we really need to help people have a right ordered perspective on suffering. And so as time has gone on, that's really become more and more a part of what I try to educate people on, especially when it comes to the other end of life, but really at both ends, it's relevant. So, so bearing that in mind, Stephanie, I think that's such a beautiful way of looking at it. And, and I wonder, I, I know this isn't in one of the questions I sent you beforehand in, in the email uh, correspondence that we had, but another factor that I find can be really valuable in these interactions with people who have experienced suffering or who are concerned about suffering is some degree of vulnerability. And when I, when I speak of vulnerability, I don't necessarily mean um, giving an entire um, chronological history of all the suffering that we've encountered in our lives, not trying to out-suffer the person we're talking to, but kind of opening them, um, their, their perspective open to suffering that people within the pro-life movement, maybe yourself, maybe somebody that you know has encountered, and how they have not only risen above to use kind of the cliche, but the fact that in spite of suffering or in spite of hardship, or even in spite of bad decisions, that they can still be loved. Whether somebody's had an abortion, whether somebody has driven somebody to an abortion um, appointment, something like that, that helping them feel comfortable with moving forward, I suppose. If, if, we, if we think about the stages of a conversation of preparing ourselves and then meeting them where they're at and understanding understanding where they've come from and where they're at right now with their emotional and kind of personal landscape, the, the moving forward with them and helping them take a next step that may have been better than their last step. Is there, maybe this is a short answer and no, maybe this is just something I'm fabricating in my own mind, but that, that idea of offering some degree of perspective for them for that next step, what role can that play in helping people take a a positive step in the right direction, I suppose. 
Yeah, I think the more we can share our own lived experience or the lived experience of someone close to us, so we've at least been observers and participants to some degree in the other person's experience, that can help the person we're dialoguing with have perspective as they leave us, as the conversation comes to a close, something to take with them to really chew on as time goes on. And so I often will say that, yeah, if people are willing to be vulnerable and share part of their own story, that can actually help the other person. Of course, no one should be forced to do that. Um, And the other point I'll make when suggesting if you're willing to do that is that we should share to the extent it helps the other person, not to the extent that it helps us. And by that, I mean, if we are in a very fresh stage of our own suffering, going through a difficult time in the present, and we still have to process things, maybe maybe we'd benefit from some counseling or mentoring, um, and we have yet to receive that help, it's possible as we begin to share our suffering with someone that we go on and on and on, and we almost turn the exchange into our personal free talk therapy, where the stranger now that we're conversing with is in a position where they feel like they need to console us. And therefore we have um, no longer, we're no longer in a position to be able to serve them in the suffering that they've shared because now they feel so bad because of, of what we've shared. But if instead we maybe share a hardship we've gone through, but we have worked enough with the aid of others to be able to share it without, you know, turning into a bubbling mess and crying so that the other person needs to console us, then we give them hope that it is possible to go through something difficult, but come through the other side. So I think we need wisdom with how we share, but I think sharing is very powerful. I mean, when I will in conversation ask someone, do you know anyone who's had an abortion? If they say yes, and if I immediately respond back with, I know people too, That's usually when they tell me who their person is because they suddenly realize, oh, this anti-abortion woman actually knows people who's had abortions. Okay, well, then maybe I can tell her it's my mom. And now she's going to tell me it's her friend. And then, you know, we're, we're going to make progress in the conversation. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, especially with the the mirroring, because I it makes me think of a conversation I had over the summer where um, the the young woman that I was speaking to, she was exhibiting some of those kind of visual cues that we talked about earlier. She was getting um, more and more fidgety. She was averting her eyes more and more frequently. Um, and I remember I, I I tried a technique. So as an aside from this aside, Peter and I have been trying to learn how to be better podcast hosts and whatnot. And Peter sent me this great video on um, how Joe Rogan um, engages people. And and one of the things that that was mentioned in it that that I unknowingly did during this conversation was I, I tried to affirm the person I was talking to right then and there. I I I don't know exactly what I said, but it was something to the effect of. Just as an aside, I, I want you to know that I think that you're awesome, regardless of the decisions that you've made in your life. Mm-hmm. And and she, she looked at me and she said, I don't believe you. I've had an abortion. I don't think that you would, would like me. I don't think that you would be my friend because of that. And that kind of gave me the opportunity. What, what do I do now? And I started sharing with her a, about a, a close friend of mine who themselves have had an abortion. Somebody that is a very good friend of mine. I obviously disagree with their decision to have had the abortion. And yet 
I had this opportunity to share the fact of, and, and like, I, I went so far as to show some pictures on my phone of me and this person of like, no, this person had an abortion when they were 18, they were just leaving high school. They thought that it was their only option. Yeah. I, I don't condone the abortion. I don't, um, want to support them in that decision, but I still absolutely love and genuinely care for this person. And they are still one of my best friends. And for that, that girl that I was talking to at activism, it just really opened up that idea that, that you mentioned of, oh, these, these pro-life people actually know people who have had abortions. It's not just some um, elite group where they've never encountered suffering. They've never made bad decisions. They're perfect people sort of thing. Not that it was taking me off of a pedestal, um, but just kind of showing that there were normal people too. Um, and that, that we have normal friends and that, and that it's not just a, you have to pass a test. I'm going to ask you all of these questions. And if you, if you answer no or yes to the wrong questions, then I'm sorry, you don't pass the friend application. We, we have people in our lives who have made decisions. We ourselves obviously have made decisions that we wish that we hadn't made. And yet that's part of being human, right? That that's something that we live with daily and we have to, in some ways, pick ourselves up. We have to allow the Lord to pick us up and try again to go back to um, the next day or the next hour, or the next moment and try to make a better decision by God's grace, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's a really long rambly rant, but that that's an experience that I've had that kind of showed where, where vulnerability can play in and just sharing a little bit about who I am and the people that I associate with, I guess. Yeah, I think it's a great example. And it should remind everyone listening to therefore not be afraid to seemingly go off the apologetics path, to go more in the heart direction, to uh, be vulnerable and therefore elicit vulnerability from the other party, uh, because clearly your position on abortion is known. Otherwise, the conversation wouldn't even be happening. And if it's in the if it's in the context of abortion victim photography, all the more the other party knows where you stand. Uh, I remember years ago, the founder of CBR, Greg Cunningham, made the remark that when a picture of abortion is put on display, abortion protests itself. In other words, you don't have to say much. It's just so obvious visually that abortion is wrong. So that if you're bringing forth the evidence, if your position on abortion being wrong in all cases is clear, then from that point, any other exchange you have, any kind of off the beaten path conversation you have is still in that context. So then the person is going to remember, interesting, these people with the images or these people with the really quote unquote extreme position of no abortion ever being allowed are actually nice or they're good listeners or they know what it's like to suffer like I've suffered and they were actually willing to share that. And that the, the fullness of that whole experience is what's ultimately going to reach people. And and that gets into a question that I had. Um, I was thinking about it right at the beginning when you mentioned that a, a big moment in your pro-life journey was that time with Scott Klusendorf when he showed you a video of abortion victim photography. And then you were uh, the executive director and one of the founders of CCBR, a group that like one of the the main strategies that we use is taking abortion victim photography to the streets. But one of the questions I had was we're talking about showing compassion to people. We're talking about reaching, um, you know, they're connecting with them emotionally. 
um, reaching them, not just on an intellectual level. But what would you say to someone who says, okay, so I really want to connect with people. I want to understand them. But these images that you are using, they are the least compassionate thing that you can do. I mean, if you're trying to be compassionate, there's one thing you can do uh, to start is to stop using those images. How would you how would you respond to that to, to show that this is part of the compassionate response that we have? Mm. So a couple approaches you could go. The first one that comes to mind just with my Socratic background would be to say, what do you mean? It's not compassionate or how would you define compassion? And what would a compassionate approach look like to you? Now, you're going to get a lot with any of those, any of those questions, let alone all three. Um, and but what you're going to then be able to draw out of the person is that what they're probably hesitant about is displaying or proclaiming any type of message that makes a person uncomfortable, which then can lead to uh, a discussion about, is it always bad to make someone uncomfortable? Is it always bad to uh, say or do something which results in the other party getting angry. I mean, as, as you guys know, as parents, there are times that your children probably pull intense tantrums because you deny them another cookie uh, or you do not deny them a cookie at all <laughs> because they, they're supposed to eat their dinner. Uh, and in that moment to that child, the denial of something they want seems cruel. But you know that just because they're having a negative reaction doesn't mean the course of action or position you took was negative in and of itself. And so analogously, we can say just because someone has a negative reaction, it doesn't mean what you've done in exposing the victims of abortion is wrong. Um, instead, you need to look to the merits of any action that you take. And so that's where we can ask people, do we have a responsibility to inform others of things they're ignorant of? And when we know something they don't know, and if we withhold the information we know, and they therefore make a choice that could harm themselves or others because they're ignorant, wouldn't we therefore bear some degree of responsibility? Now, I think, as you guys also certainly are masters of, as with any tool, abortion victim photography is a tool. It's just like a fetal model. It's like a fact about an abortion breast cancer link. As a tool, it can be used well or it can be used poorly. And there are certain times where we might want to grab one tool over another tool. So there's continual discernment for any individual, whether they're a full-time activist or whether they are Betty Sue just talking to a colleague at work. In any encounter, you're continually discerning what's the best tool I should draw on right now and how do I best even use this tool. Um, but just because we need to have discernment about how to best use something doesn't mean it shouldn't be used at all. And just because someone has a negative reaction doesn't mean the stimulus for the negative reaction was itself wrong. One of the things I really, really notice, Stephanie, when you're talking is your use of questions and the importance um, that you place around questions um, throughout your apologetic method, as it were. When you're talking about different uh, heart problems, when, or heart problems, when you're talking about different uh, points of suffering, as it were, or, or different 
uh, points in the conversation where you really are on different pages when it comes to abortion. You're using question after question after question, trying to pry into why is it that they believe this very thing and trying to get behind just the facade of what people are saying uh, at times. And I think that's really good to highlight. We've pointed it out pointed it out on the show before the importance of questions, but I, I, I think you really have highlighted throughout this this last hour or so uh, the importance of them. Cam, you have, a, you have a question that you want to ask. I know I cut you off here. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I think that that goes hand in hand. I, I know that at CCBR, we often attribute this quote to Devorah Gilman. I'm, I'm sure that, um, shoot, what is Devorah's new last name? Devorah got married this year. Stacey, Devorah Stacey. Stacey, Devorah Stacey. We, we attributed it to Devorah. I'm sure that it was spoken long before Devorah ever said it. Um, this idea that love without truth, um, sorry, how does it go? Truth without love is ineffective. Love without truth is a lie. That we, we still need to convey truth in the message that, that we're giving people. And that sometimes, um, not only through questions, but sometimes we actually have to clarify that for people and, and help them come into our shoes as well. I, I loved how you put it earlier in the conversation about needing to get into the shoes of the person that we're, we're speaking with and understanding the paradigm that they're coming from and what their lived experience has been. However, at, at times I've, I've seen it to be beneficial to help clarify to them of like, if I genuinely love you, what, what would I be compelled to do with my worldview? Like, like you mentioned at the beginning, in my worldview, everyone is protected and we have to fight for everybody. If I genuinely believe that you are valuable regardless of what you've done or anything about you, simply the fact that you are human means that nobody should be allowed to harm you, then that demands that I'm consistent in that and um, being able to share that. And so I know that's not much of a question, but but yeah, sometimes mixing with questions to help people understand where we're coming from as well, because for many people, they've never contemplated the idea of being completely against abortion. They've, they've always perceived this to be a very oppressive kind of, you, you're saying this because you hate me when really we're saying this because we actually love them very deeply mm -hmm. and that we want the best for them. And we don't want them, them to be harmed or their preborn child to be harmed or anybody in their sphere of influence, I suppose. I, that's more of a rambling than a question, I suppose, Stephanie, but. Um, Certainly, it's, it's a great point. And I think it also highlights that what what is our nature as humans? Yes, we're, we're beings that love, but we're also beings that are rational. Even the preborn child has a rational nature. It's just due to her age, she cannot act on it. But that rational nature is an advantage to us. And we want to tap into it. We want to work with it. And so the more we ask people questions, the more we explain why you're doing something and the person then takes less offense because they realize, oh, you're actually motivated by love. I never thought of it that way. And the key phrase is I never thought of it that way. And all too often people aren't thinking deeply anymore about any issue. And it could be our, you know, social media obsessed culture or Twitter culture where people can have only a certain amount of characters to get across a point. There is so much about life that cannot be condensed that we need novels, we need lengthy, you know, essays, we need things in detail. And so when we hold conversations and we ask people questions, what we're actually doing is tapping into their rational nature, leading them to a fuller version uh, and a most mature version of who they are and ought to be, which is to think deeper and then be more loving, both of which lead to a fullness of our, our nature. 
As we wrap up, Stephanie, um, we've referenced your book, Love Unleashes Life, that came out several years ago. But you also have a new book, which is called Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. Could you briefly explain what this book is going to be about? Give your, give, give your pitch. Yes, sure. So the book just came out. People can learn more by going to my website, loveunleasheslife.com and clicking on the books link. Um, but basically, as I started dealing with the other end of life, that of assisted suicide and euthanasia, I really identified that at the core of that issue is suffering and people motivated to want to end their life or have their life ended because they believe their suffering has gone to too far. And in my book, one of the things I highlight is the insights of a philosopher or psychiatrist rather, and Holocaust survivor, Dr. Viktor Frankl. Of course, you guys are very familiar with him and his writings. And I know Jonathan and Blaze have, have made one of his excellent points in their book, which is that despair is suffering without meaning is one of the points that Dr. Frankel made. And so his whole point was that people need to search for meaning in whatever suffering they face rather than give up on life, they have to say, what meaning can I find in this difficult circumstance? And we all can actually find meaning in whatever circumstance we're in, if we look hard enough, and if we're taught or guided how to do that. And so having said that, when someone is suffering, the understandable inclination is to ask the question, not what meaning can I find in this, but why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering? Why, why, why? So that's a natural reaction. But as I point out in my book, that doesn't get us very far because we often can't really explain why does one person go through the horrors of genocide and another person doesn't? Why are some people victims of human trafficking and we aren't? I mean, other than saying we live in an imperfect world and sin exists and, and some people have a rougher go than others, it, it's still those answers don't fully satisfy. So what I suggest in my book is that when we face suffering, instead of focusing on the question why, we want to focus on the question what, which is going to lead to meaning. In other words, what amazing, wonderful, incredible thing can I bring out of this terrible, horrible, awful thing? And so from there, I then share lots of stories of inspiring people who have faced profound and brutal suffering and how in their difficult circumstances, they have started with what? And they have said, what can I bring out of this? What can I learn from this? What can I do in response to this? And how they have lived lives of great fullness and meaning uh, as a result of starting with what. And then I go through a number of other principles that we need to have to really build a culture of life when it comes to assisted suicide, such as focusing on connection, relationship, a communion of persons, creativity, beauty, and so forth. And so there's, there's lots of stories packed in there. Love it. I, I am so excited, Stephanie, to check out this book. Love Unleash Your Life has been one of my one of my favorite apologetics books on the abortion issue for such a long time since it came out. And I, I am very keen um, to dive into this as well, because I, I think that now is as important of a time as ever on, on this conversation, especially here in Canada, as assisted suicide euthanasia continues to be um, challenged and expanded um, on on the political levels, and more and more, it's being considered by by people 
across the country, and I'm sure that this is happening around the world. So I think the timing of this book is incredible. We'll be adding a link to your new book in the show notes. And for listeners who want to check out all things Stephanie Gray, where can they find you? Sure, yes. Yeah. So pretty much the hub for finding information on me is my website, which is loveunleasheslife.com. I have a blog there that people can read that covers not only abortion-assisted suicide, but sometimes more inspirational, motivational reflections, as well as I've tackled some other pro-life-related topics topics like birth control and in vitro fertilization. So by going to the blog, people can learn more. And I do have a schedule up as with all of us, COVID continues to um, put a big question mark on people's at least near futures. So a lot of my stuff is still online. So I'm still quite busy, but it's doing things like this. It's podcasts, it's Zoom presentations and so forth. So people can go to my events page to see what type of online activities I have. And I'll certainly be doing a lot of promotions of my start with what book and then I have a third book that will be on the topic of in vitro fertilization that I'm going to be starting to write this year. Wonderful. That is great to hear. I look forward to that one as well. Very relevant to the conversation that we are having now. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been fun. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Stephanie Gray Connors, author of Love Unleashes Life. And Start with what? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. That was a super important conversation, extremely important content in there for us to remember and think about as we prepare to have conversations on the streets and as we engage with the public about abortion. Not everyone is thinking about abortion on an intellectual level. A lot of people are thinking about abortion in terms of the way they have experienced it um, or some of the experiences that they have had. And so we are really thankful for Stephanie, the work that she's done and the wisdom that she could share with us for for us as we uh, as we engage with people in conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. My name is Peter. That is Cam. As we mentioned at the beginning, check us out on YouTube. Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, our new series that we've started. We're really excited about it, and we can't wait for you to hear the stories of some of the activists that are on the streets working day in and day out, some of them, some of them volunteer basis, but unsung heroes defending and protecting pre-born children. Cameron, my friend, would you like to close us off today? I would love to, and I would love to just draw people back to to one one line that stood out in particular from Stephanie, just as as it pertains to preparing to excel in pro-life conversations, those three steps that she talked about, prayer, study, practice. I, I cannot emphasize enough each of those three steps to prepare ourselves to have the right disposition when it comes to having compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion, to be able to understand where people are coming from and respond with clarity and with charity and just gaining that practice. And so pray, study, practice to get the right disposition to allow for the right delivery of content. I'm so glad that Stephanie was able to join us. So glad that you are tuning in as our audience. Thank you very much. Um, And that's all for me, Peter. All right. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 